0: Okay, so my my talk today is on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Um, Basically CPAP and BiPAP and how we can use it to uh, treat our patients in respiratory failure uh, in the emergency room. Um, So a little bit of history, it began in the 1700s, it sounds like, with this bellows device where they stoke fires, the big air bladder, and they pump it. And it was for uh, drowning victims, it sounds like, and they just stick it in their throat and pound it. And a lot of barotrauma and pneumothoraces and things like that as you can expect. And then in 1832 the, uh, they c- kind of started tinkering with the idea um, after understanding the physiology of breathing where the, the chest wall kind of expands, creates negative pressure, and allows the patients to take breaths. So they began to figure out ways to create a, neg- a uh, negative pressure chamber that kind of culminated in the iron lung in 1928. <laughs> and if you guys have seen, um, oh, what's that movie, The Big, the Big Lebowski? You know when they go to the little kid's house, the dude that likes the comic books? Mm -hmm. Anyway, that guy's in an iron lung. Um, So in the 50s... (laughs) But I digress. How's I digress. So anyway, in the 50s, the uh, the polio epidemic kind of overwhelmed the capacity of all the iron lungs. So there's kind of this incentive to kind of come up with new ways for positive pressure ventilation uh, using other means such as ET tubes. Um, But it wasn't until the 80s where the positive pressure ventilation can be administered... Um, through uh, masks, um, mostly to treat patients with obstructive sleep apnea, but it was so effective that they kind of just used it for other uh, medical problems. COPD was the next one, and then today, a lot of medical centers use this as first-line um, intervention for patients that are in respiratory distress. Um, so the benefits, it reduces the work of breathing, as you'd expect, decreases the transdiaphragmatic pressures and, and the respiratory rate, Increases tidal volume and oxygenation. There are risks, however. Um, it's not a definitive airway. Um, there's a, there's a significant risk of aspiration. Um, gastric distension is a big problem. A lot of the air you're just forcing air into the mouth. A lot of it goes down the esophagus, unfortunately. So the belly or the stomach gets bigger, and you're you know will throw up. Uh, for our MICU patients um, and SICU patients, for that. Can dry out the uh, mucous membranes, and you get pressure sores that can get actually pretty bad. I've seen a couple of pretty bad ones that make you um, the absolute contraindications of this: uh, any condition where there's a, a need for immediate intubation, obviously. Patients that are vomiting, um, inability to protect airway, cardiac instabilities. If there's um, you know like VTAC, VFiB, I wouldn't throw them on <laughs> BIPAP or CPAP. Static status epilepticus, potential airway obstructions. You shouldn't use CPAP or BIPAP. So the two types we're going to talk about is, again, CPAP and BiPAP, and this is probably review for everyone, but it's continuous positive airway pressure and bi-level positive airway pressure. Um, You want to start CPAP around 5 centimeters of water, and you can titrate it up to 15. Um, That's the recommendation. For BiPAP, it's divided into two, inspiratory positive airway pressure and expiratory positive airway pressure. and usually want to start around 5 and 10 centimeters of water, respectively. And um, so this guy that, sent, that you sent me, the um, what's this guy's name? Scott Weingart, Weingart. yeah. He, uh, he had a great analogy, I thought, um, of what CPAP is. Just a glorified hair dryer. Basically just shooting air, constant pressure, constant flow. And I think that's a good way of thinking about it. Um, if you remember from the ICU event settings, so that the ways we control oxygenation are um, FiO2 and PEEP and ventilation is controlled with um, changing the respiratory rate and tidal volumes, right? So CPAP is essentially PEEP, and you want to use it in patients that are having trouble oxygenating. You have trouble oxygenating when your alveoli are filled with fluid, pus, um, if they're collapsing in atelectasis. So for CHF, atelectasis, and pneumonia, CPAP is good. BiPAP's a little different. Um, It affects ventilation more, the inspiratory pressure does, you want to treat patients that are having difficulty with ventilation, such as COPD and asthma. And again, there's two levels. Of, there's two levels of pressure. It's CPAP and then the inspiratory pressure that you're generating with BiPAP. Tyler, sorry,
1: what did you say? Was C, what it, CPAP
0: is better for versus BiPAP? CPAP's better for conditions that you need oxygenation with. Um, the recommendations are the ones here: CHF, atelectasis, like pneumonia. So
2: it just keeps alveoli open. Yeah. But it doesn't breathe for you. Correct. Correct. BiPAP does. Right. Both. Well,
0: Yep, and this is a horrible uh, graph of this, but I just wanted to show that for BiPAP. So PEEP is just gener- is just CPAP. You can just think of it as CPAP, and so there's a steady line, and then for BiPAP, every time the patient inspires, there's an increased pressure, and that's positive inspiratory pressure, which is BiPAP, only in BiPAP. But CPAP is just where you see that line for PEEP.
2: And the machine senses the negative inspiratory.
0: Uh, and it gives a breath. Pressure in it. it. Gives a breath.
3: No, it gives a breath. It gives yeah the so pressure
0: you set a rate with it yeah no 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 you don't have to set a rate you no, uh-huh. set you set, just, you set yeah, pressure, is pressure. Uh-huh. so the uses in the emergency department um, obviously it's going to improve symptoms of respiratory distress um, it's good if you want to avoid the complications of intubation as we always do um, and also it gives you a lot of time it gives, well not a lot it gives you time to discuss DNR DNI. Um, <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> So, that kind of stuff. Or if
1: they have a DNR and DNI, then.
0: (laughs) So, your medicine colleagues will love you if you get that. Because, you know, if you can't, if you throw a tube down and you throw on a ventilator, you're going to get the history from a third party, which obviously isn't as good. Sure. Um, So, as you'd expect, the predictors for success is going to correct the respiratory acidosis, it's going to prove the pH, and decrease PaCO2. Um, It's going to predictors of failure. Worsening acidosis, worsening hypercapnia, yeah. and if their men, <laughs> mental status decreases. In which case, you would always take it off and just intubate. Do you know if you can measure end-tidal CO2
3: on these
0: machines? I don't.
3: You can. What is it? Uh, because if it's you're doing it. It's fairly reliable, actually. Is it fairly reliable mm-hmm. since it's a closed?
1: Yeah, it is, actually. They've uh, done the study of that, and at uh, Long Beach, they have those end-tidal CO2 members.
3: They, they put on an
0: actual CPAP. Mm-hmm. And there's a separate machine that the entitled CO2 goes to. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And you can, you can titrate it Okay, so. Oops, what happened? Okay, so you throw them on a mask, uh, you get an ABG. So again, if it demonstrates low PaO2 and a, and a oxygenation problem, you're going to do CPAP, uh, which is PEEP. If it demonstrates a low pH or an elevated PaCO2, it's a ventilation problem, and you want to use BiPAP and adjust the, the inspiratory pressure accordingly. Um, this has nothing to do with Tiger, I just love this slide. Um, so we'll just run through a couple of cases. <laughs> 65-year-old dude, smokes two packs a day for 40 years, now with a worsening cough and shortness of breath. What's this guy got, Deans? Not PE. Yeah, so this, this guy, Keenan, uh, did the uh, systematic review of all the literature published in Annals and Annals of Internal Medicine in um and found that BiPAP could decrease the rate of intubation by 20%, in hospital mortality by 10%, and length of hospital stay by four and a half stays or four and a half days. So BiPAP works. Um, the reason it works is it, is it decreases the work of breathing. So it's going to mostly for two reasons: it unloads the stress of respiratory muscles, and it increases tidal volume. Okay, and Case two, 62-year-old guy, history of 3MIs, hypertension <coughs> for 20 years, now the worsening, shortness of breath, cough, leg swelling. What's this guy got? Austin. CHF. failure. <laughs> <HIV. laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so the left heart's failing, so obviously the pulmonary vascular vasculature is going to get congested, and uh, it's going to leak out into your stitchum and then eventually into the alveoli. And the problem with that is it's going to lead to poor lung compliance. Uh, the patient's gonna generally become hypoxemic and hypercapnic. Um, And if you guys remember this curve, the pressure volume curve. um, Well, first of all, so what NIPPV does is it recruits alveoli, like Dr. Langdorf said. It increases the compliance of the lungs and decreases preload and afterload. Um, On this diagram, so we're living kinda in the middle here, that's a nice compliant lung. Compliance is just change in volume over change in pressure. Um, So small changes in pressure can create a relatively large change in volume. So that's a nice compliant lung. What happens is when we when our lungs get filled with fluid, the airspace in our lungs decreases and we fall down here. And so in order to get that same volume change for our, for our breathing, it takes a great deal of pressure. That's a poorly compliant lung. Um, it also decreases preload. And, and my understanding of this is that so when we introduce positive pressure to the chest cavity, the heart's in the chest, obviously. So it's going to prevent blood flow returned to the heart, so the preload's decreased. And then as far as afterload, the positive pressure we generate is adding to the left ventricular um, blood pressure, so it's not actually decreasing the afterload, it's just kind of giving the heart a little bit of help to overcome the, the peripheral vascular uh, resistance. So CHF, there's been m- many studies that demonstrate the effectiveness of CPAP and CHF exacerbation, but the biggest study that has been done related to this is done by Gray, published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 08, and basically (laughs) found no reduction in intubations or short-term mortality rates, so basically no change. Um, It was a huge study, multi-center randomized perspective, over 1,000 patients. Um, So what ended up happening is this guy Wang and a couple of his buddies wanted to kind of investigate the literature, and uh, they did this meta-analysis, which was more recent, published in 2010, and wanted to Uh, estimate the effects of NIV on outcomes in patients with um, acute uh, cardiogenic pulmonary edema or CHF exacerbation. What they did was they searched PubMed, M-based Cochrane from 66 to 2009 and just selected randomized trials that compared CPAP and BiPAP to patients not receiving it and what they found was this. (laughs) That although a recent large trial contradicts results from previous studies, the evidence in aggregate still supports the use of non-invasive ventilation for patients with CHF exacerbation, so we should be using it. Mm -hmm. Um, So just to recap, COPD is a ventilation problem, and you want to use BiPAP for that and adjust the inspiratory pressures, and CHF is a problem with oxygenation, so you want to use CPAP. Okay, case three is a 26-year-old girl, female, sorry, history of asthma, presents in tripod position, poor airment, bilateral wheezing, prolonged expiratory phase, and here's the ABG. What do you think, Deans? How does this ABG look for this girl?
2: Mm, oxygenation is a problem. Her PO2 is low. Or, like
0: asthma or obstructive lung disease. Yeah, she's got asthma for oh, sure. Um, so, it's an oxygenation problem. So, you can put her on a Well, <laughs> so this patient. No, normally, in an asthma exacerbation, you'd expect what? The breathing. Mm, as far as an AVG finding. So
2: that's pH, PCO2, PO2, correct? Yeah. So so retaining
0: CO2 <laughs> and low So this guy, this, this <laughs> girl, so <Yeah. laughs> you'd expect like a respiratory alkalosis, right? So the pH is going to be high, nice. and the CO2 is going to be low. So once the patient starts tiring out, then it's, it's right. So the pH is going to go to normal, and the CO2 is going to actually become normal. So this patient's, yeah, so you've got to intervene pretty quickly here, right, or she's going to deteriorate. So an asthma exacerbation uh, is similar to COPD, the, the pathophysiology. Um, so again, it's the, the way it works is it's gonna unload the stress of the respiratory muscles and it's gonna um, increase your tidal volume so you're gonna ventilate better. Um, you're gonna see improvements in the spirometry, the PFTs, uh, and such. There's been l- very little uh, data um, to support it, but there is evidence. j Ho sent me this article. It's this guy, Nook, that did a literature review of asthma exacerbation in uh, NIPPV. Published in 99, he found two randomized trials uh, and two meta-analyses that uh, basically, in conclusion, show that MPBV should be you should try before intubating um, in patients with acute asthma and respiratory failure. But again, this is for patients that are hemodynamically stable that you know are just have this in the, in your back pocket before you intubate. So if someone presents like this to the ED, you would just tube them. You wouldn't even uh,
2: you, so you would try. Like, oh so yeah, just, right? sure. okay. and even in the the pre- I don't think Orange County. Orange County doesn't have it, but LA County does. Okay. And uh, like at Long Beach, you'll get patients that come in with CPAP already on, and you just switch up the machine over. So, so even if the ABT looks like that, you can still try it. a non invasive pressure okay. yeah. Especially yeah. a young girl like that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the last resort for an asthmatic is to intubate, so yeah, I mean, right. you'd okay. I mean, you wait until they really have really altered mental status of CO2, is too high, so they get sleepy, no. and yeah. yeah. you can't Oxygenation, only as a last resort. And so, before I would um, intubate an asthmatic, I would use ketamine as a, as a bronchodilator. Throw the whole kitchen sink at them—everything you've got, including the epinephrine—and then, then you use ketamine as a sort of a pre-induction. See if it works to improve the ventilation, and if it doesn't, then I'll intubate them, sort of thing. But I had one experience with a thirteen-year-old where we gave ketamine as a uh, induction agent. Expected to intubate him, and the, and the respiratory therapist bagging him after the ketamine was given said, "Boy, he's easier to bag now." Mm. We didn't intubate him; he actually flew fine on a ketamine drip, still semi-awake, but bronchodilated mm. it was in a one.
3: So quite so and if
2: you think of that as a as a precursor,
3: you'd only intubate him
2: as a last resort. Uh, is there any is.
3: thought too? Because when I see most of these patients, the BiPAP they're really having trouble tolerating it, just because they're becoming agitated. And is it because they're not breathing or whatnot? Is the ketamine obviously it does the bronchodilation but it's also ha- is there any <laughs> look at using anxiolytics or you know, I always felt like I could just calm this person down and get them to breathe in easier. Has that been looked at yeah, at it's, all?
0: It's in that talkie game. There's some about. expert
1: opinion yeah. on that. But I don't think there's any randomized control trials or even retrospective trials, but the ketamine's good because it's not only it's a disassociative right. as well as uh sympathomimetic, right? So you kinda get both effects. And so, although one of the uh, contraindications to putting someone on non-invasive is mental status, you have to have good mental status. So it's this catch-22, they're gonna buy the two. Now, are you gonna risk aspiration and putting them on BiPAP slash ketamine, like a low-dose ketamine, and by low-dose, I mean instead of the two milligrams, maybe one or half a milligram and see how it goes, or you can use an induction. Um, ketamine, too, but I, I usually do the half dose of ketamine and see how they do. If they're still struggling, I'll try them on the BiPAP. And the BiPAP really sounds count, counterintuitive if you think about it, because in an asthmatic, you're trying to exhale, right? You're trying to get all that the air out of your lungs, and you're worried about lung trapping. But at this point, they're in severe distress. They've used up all their ATP, and they're having a really tough time breathing because they're pooped. And this just gives them a crutch to hopefully let um, your steroids work maybe for a couple of hours. I mean, there's some yeah. stuff that will kick out later. Yeah, and hopefully, you got the ketamine, the epi, all the other jazz, to, the mag,
2: and all that stuff to help you stave off an intubation. Yeah, so Wait, that, are, by reason, the reason the, the CPAP, IPAP is, quote, contraindicated in altered mental status is because we presume those people are sleepy and. Can tolerate it, but if you give them ketamine, then they don't have the same sleepiness. They're actually sort of awake and dissociated, so they're they all their muscle tone is good, <coughs> and they protect their airway, and and so you know if you had somebody who well, had a snow with benzos in order to get them to competent to uh, to uh, tolerate the uh, bipap or cpap mask, then that wouldn't work because then they would vomit and aspirate, uh, so they're therefore it's contraindicated. But if you're not giving the traditional sedative that would make them not control their airway, ketamine, then sort of remove that contraindication. So you could snow them with ketamine and put the mask on. I do think anybody would, would argue with that. I think it's a real good idea. I hadn't thought of that. But, but uh, that would be a combination of non-invasive ventilation, cal- a calming or at least cooperative effect, and bronchodilation. Do
0: that next time. And then I, I had a question, T yeah. <laughs> First line, there, We're with doing no, no, the <laughs> <laughs> We're always, like we always <laughs> jump to give, you know, 125 with <laughs> Selimedrol or something uh, right away, but the, the effect of that's not going to be for a couple hours, yeah, right? right, so you're not. So this could be a bridge
2: if you can keep them, from buying the tube for those two, three hours, until the, yeah. till
3: the, till the steroids came in, you know, like, You're know, yep. so you talking about something else, too, but the alveoli recruitment, um, How long have you looked? Did it mention how long that takes? I mean, that's not obviously instantaneous.
0: No, but we have, as a medical student, and when I was in the ICU here, we put a patient on CPAP with CHF exacerbation, and it was maybe like half an hour improvement. I thought. Okay. But I don't. I didn't see any studies. But there's
1: nothing that says.
3: Yeah, it really
0: works.
1: And that's important because if they keep breaking, having this that's anxiety, what I thought, and they because keep if breaking they don't, the circuit, then, then it's like pretty much you cuts have to it off. Start all over again. Right. So yeah. that's the
3: problem with these people that rip off the mask. That all that alveolar recruitment that you've been doing, and let's say you half an hour, they break the mask for like a minute. You're oh, automatically oh yeah. Back to nothing. It's almost yeah. Over.
2: Yeah.
0: That's yeah. true. Didn't think of that. So restrain them Just put him in restraints. Anxiety. So 81-year-old guy in the mickey for Urosepsis, worsening respiratory acidosis and decreasing O2 sats. And the chest x-ray in the morning at 4 a.m. is on the left, and then the one, you get paged um, because of these these findings, and you get a repeat chest x-ray at 4 p.m., and that's the one on the right. So what's this guy got? Probably ours, maybe? I don't know. So, real quick, the pathophysiology, just for review, cytokines, leukotrienes, other inflammatory markers, injure the endothelium of the capillaries, leads to leakage, and then in the interstitium, those same inflammatory markers are damaging the alveoli, and you're left with pulmonary edema. And in ARDS, you have a, you can have a perfectly functioning open alveoli right next to a consolidated, inflamed, collapsed alveoli. Um, so currently, BiPAP or CPAP is not recommended as first-line therapy. Um, And I tried to get like a clear-cut reason why, but the best I could get was from from other few studies and from up-to-date, it sounds like the increasing tidal volume and the cyclic opening and closing of alveoli just make the inflammation worse. It jeopardizes the integrity of the capillaries, which is already inflamed and damaged, and it just further damages the alveoli. Um, That being said, there's been a a couple studies that have shown that it has been helpful. Um, This guy, Antonelli, um, published this multiple center survey in critical care medicine in uh, January of 07 that showed that um, patients that did receive either BiPAP or CPAP, um, they were able to avoid intubation in half of their patients. Um, And then what you are talking about, Merv, um, for uh, sedation. The mask, so you guys have all seen this huge mask, the strap's big. Um, it's loud, it's horrible. The patients are already in respiratory distress, obviously, so they, you don't want like an elephant trunk on your face. Um, so to help them tolerate it a little bit better, if it's uncomfortable, you can give them a touch of uh, fentanyl, 25 mics. Um, if it's anxiety contributing to the respiratory distress, maybe a touch of Versed. Um, but again, these the side effects of these medicines are respiratory depression, so you gotta be really, really careful. Um, so in conclusion, COPD is a uh, ventilation issues, so you want to use BiPAP, and the inspiratory pressures is what you're adjusting. CHF is CPAP. Um, For asthma, there's limited data, but most studies do support the use of NIPBB. Um, Same pathophysiology of COPD, so you want to use BiPAP for that. Um, As far as ARDS, again, there's limited uh, data available to us, but currently it's not recommended as first-line therapy, but there has been evidence that shows it is beneficial. We've Um, used
2: used, uh, BiPAP and CHF as well. Is there a reason that the recommendation is, seems to be confined to CPAP as opposed
0: to BiPAP? So I looked, I looked at several studies, and some of them show that BiPAP, I think most of the studies have been used with CPAP, would be my, would be my explanation. Because but they have studied BiPAP and CPAP, and it's effective, both are effective, but because it's more of an uh, oxygenation issue, CPAP's generally better. I think it's been studied. Well, more.
2: But the patients who come into the emergency department, my experience, is that they're also tuckered out yeah. yeah, working on that the breathing, breathing. And so yeah. removing that weak work of breathing by using the BIPAP makes a lot more sense to me. It's almost as if CPAP were, it's not it's not doing enough, right? Because most I mean, when we first order this, you know, yes, we may get a blood gas and may come back in a little while, but you're going know, to you make the decision to call the machine, and you're going to worry initially about ventilation and oxygenation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would knee-jerk BIPAP for CHF, not the knee-jerk either one of these for CHF you guys remind me to let's order ventilation, I would mean, think CPAP, i just think
0: BiPAP. Right. Or yeah, the study that d- that I included that looked at this actually showed the the meta-analysis that was done did show CPAP and BiPAP being effective, but there's it sounds like there's more literature supporting CPAP. I don't I don't know if there's any contraindications to BiPAP. Shouldn't I think we always do BiPAP though, here. Do we? Yeah, when you bring the RT comes over, they usually just put everything on BiPAP. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And frankly, I asked the RT, what do you think? We've got more experience with
0: it
3: than i do so yeah. i go with what they say yeah definitely in RED, what is the i don't know time period we can technically expect to get cpap down uh, the machine, bedside? i know it's we have there the but it only takes the like the no,
2: machine in the storage room across the hall mm-hmm. the ED. ED. people don't necessarily yeah, no, know it's right. there and the rt doesn't like that machine so they will bring their own but what i've done a couple times i've done it is said, get our machine to the bedside and the rt arrives either they got the page that we needed, that's the other thing is that we need to let them know that's what we need in the first page, because normally they'd come down to the ED expecting us to do a endotracheal tube, and they go, oh, you need BiPAP, I need to go get the machine. So the page should include the need for, for BiPAP to begin with, and we should bring our machine to the bedside. And then if it shows up without it, you can hook up our machine and switch over later because they've got a different mask that they think is more tolerable. And has there been thought so about 20 minutes. 20 I know some of these do this,
3: they have respiratory tech, respiratory therapists just for the ED. Has there ever
2: been thought about us getting one of those? No. <laughs> we, do, we do 420 <laughs> no. intubations a year. Yeah. And so that means one and a half a day, and so. No, for all respiratory issues, I mean. Getting one? Like asthma.
3: Asthma, I mean, yeah. They, yeah, could they could do like chest physio on them that could maybe turn around quicker, you know. They could handle all the breathing treatments. I mean,
1: there would definitely be enough treatment. Oh, you know what we should do which i think is maybe even more useful is learn how to use that right, right yeah that's where that works. We, can, yeah. what we can do is yeah, definitely uh part of our yeah. simulation day is have one of these machines maybe even have a respiratory therapist come here roll the machine over let's have a mannequin or one of you guys can model Put you down here, we'll crank it up to 80, <laughs> 80 <laughs> watts. You know, we'll <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: yeah, I'd like and, uh, to try it. You know, we we'll have some. <laughs> we can do everything. Yeah. rt can do
2: exams. But yeah, that yeah. guy so yeah. so yeah.
0: Scott Wine, Ly- he does make a point of that in that podcast. You get a
3: BiPAP at bedside. but then, you're like, geez, I'm going to intubate this person. That's a very good point
1: because it does take 20 minutes usually to get that person down. I think there's some utility and someone, you know, this m M&M case, it, it would now? be an excellent case to have used like, BiPAP on, at least at the bare minimum to get his oxygenation up from 85% on a non-rebreather. I bet you if you used BiPAP or CPAP, whatever, you would have got it to the low 90s. And that would have been, probably you would have bought the tube anyways, yeah. I've given you that a little extra 30 seconds in case you couldn't find the cords right away. And it yeah. saves him 20 minutes of hypoxia sitting right? there. Right, exactly. Yeah ischemia, hypoxia, yeah. and everything else. So I think we should do that. Um,
0: Almost. Let me machine.
1: work on yeah, I mean, yeah, it. yeah. Love to just because it's not hard. You should stick it on
0: face and you're strap <coughs> strapped off. Right, yeah. Where are they
3: physically located? Good. Are they in the storage room in the corner? Storage yeah. So it's pretty quick, we can get to them
1: pretty quick. Go over there, grab it, we just,
3: we just, just have to learn how to
1: use the, the machine, the tubing,
2: and just get familiar I'm with it. Sure only too only too one caution is I don't know whether there's going to be any scope of practice issues about whether Doc's going to use it. So. I mean, we'd always call an RT down
3: when they get there instead of just like, so getting started. It's getting It's always taking
0: too long. Yeah, they RTs. just is bail. They don't have. We. I tried this. Put a patient on BIPAP, and they just leave to go get the machine. The guys like tanking. Well, is the machine there? What's that?
3: They should leave to go get the machine. No, they
0: should bring it down. We should tell them.
3: Oh, ahead of time, I bring yeah. Um,
0: so the other thing I was just going to go over. Can you read it? Has everybody seen this? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Everyone knows this. Yeah. This is Uncle Burns' famous antibiotic. Antibiotic. antibiotic algorithm. Oh, this is a new lecture. <laughs> oh yeah, I can. I can be done. No, no, I'm saying this. Like oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's um, this is going to be a short, short lecture. So I asked James, like, what else I should talk about. Yeah. And so I thought I'd just go over this. This is very helpful. I use this all the time. Um, this is this is on <laughs> Can you guys you guys can't see it, huh? No. Damn. You guys Do
1: you wanna pull you it up, up off the you just say it. Yeah, yeah.
0: just okay. pull up
3: dollars, yeah. Bucks, yeah. top left. You, you mouse
0: to oh yeah, good call, Christian. That's why you get paid the big bucks. Yeah, the big bucks. So right here, this is really important. Six hours after um, I can't read it either. But anyway. <laughs> six hours after presentation uh, to the ER, you want to get IV antibiotics board. Whenever you diagnose pneumonia um, on a patient that's going to require admission. And this is for obviously patients that need to be admitted. These aren't for the send home with the ZPAC. So, first thing you want to do is once you make the diagnosis, you want to differentiate whether or not the patient's going to go to the ICU or not. It looks complicated, but it's actually really easy, this, so bear with me. So, ICU or not, and then what you're going to and then you're going to figure out whether or not these patients have pseudomonal risk factors. That's the next branch. And if you don't remember, that's okay, because Dr. Burns put them in the top right corner. It's basically uh, bronchiectasis, specifically. It's um, lung, di- like um, the structural lung disease. It's chronic steroids. It's recurrent uh, pneumonias with uh, different antibiotics being used, um, a previous history of pseudomonas, or any other risk factors like being a, a nursing skill a, a sniff or uh, recently discharged from a hospital. So any of those, um, you're going to treat differently. You're going to treat pseudomonas as well. So okay, so then, it's, so when they come in, it's IC or not, and then it's pseudomonal risk factors, and then the other, the last thing is just if they're allergic to penicillin or not. So when I use this thing, most commonly they go to the, like go to Telly, and they're not, they have no pseudomonal risk factors, so you'd be here, and then pseudomonal risk factors no, and then it goes over here and you're gonna do uh, cephotaxium and doxycycline, or cephotaxium and one of the macrolides. If for some reason they're in the ER, like two days prior and there's a gram stain available and it shows that it might be pneumococcal, then you can just give ampicillin. It's two grams, I think it's two grams uh, every six hours. Um, So if they come in and they're not that sick, but they have pseudomonal risk factors, then you can go down this pathway and if they're not penicillin allergic, you give Zosyn and levoquin. If they are penicillin allergic, you give levoquin and Astrianum. Um If they come in and they, they're really sick and they go to the intensive care unit, um, then it, you do the same thing. Do they have pseudomonal risk factors, are listed there. And then there's a bunch of different options that Dr. Burns came up with, depending on whether or not um, they're penicillin allergic. And you just read it. I won't go over them because no one will remember. Um, and that's it. And the other thing, too, to point out is, so get blood cultures from two different sites, 10 minutes apart so you can tell the nurse. And then our internal medicine colleagues always love to get sputum cultures, but you can start the antibiotics after the blood cultures, but before the sputum cultures. You don't have to wait. So just get antibiotics on board right after the blood cultures or are set. Um And then it'd be helpful to know this, so once you diagnose pneumonia at the bedside, you know, fever cough, um, Basically, you can go through these questions just so you'll know when you get back when you're back to the computer. Right in your note, know, you'll know where you are in the pathway. You don't have to go back to the bedside. Just be quicker. Ready? That's all I got.